Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Professor Jeffrey Vogley, the author of Being Watched, Legal Challenges to Government Surveillance. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So, Jeff, one of the things I find fascinating about this, we, a couple episodes ago, talked to Andrew Guthrie Ferguson about where surveillance is today and what kind of data tracking and and data surveillance is going to be used by police in the future. But with this book, we get a look back at the history of American surveillance. And could you describe a little bit about American attitudes towards government surveillance and how they may have shifted over time? Sure. The attitudes of Americans towards government surveillance uh, tend to uh, sort of swing on a pendulum, uh, go back and forth between tolerance of government surveillance to hostility to government surveillance. And uh, what tends to drive these spikes are uh, crises within uh, the government or or outside the government. So, for example, uh, wars are probably the most striking example of what drives government surveillance. And if you look at uh, the history going back even to you know the uh, War of 1812, Civil War, World War One, World War Two, you see spikes of uh, government surveillance where, depending on who the perceived enemy is and various other variables, the government will start to uh, increase their surveillance of U.S. citizens. And you know, d- depending you know on on the circumstances, the citizens usually you know take for example World War One. Uh, there's obviously a, a surge of uh, patriotism, and uh, the uh, the citizens are then are therefore more likely to uh, be tolerant of government surveillance. We're seeing that now again in the post 9/11 era. Uh, this is the era of the Patriot Act and, and various other acts that have increased uh, or significantly altered the landscape of government surveillance of U.S. citizens. And uh, you know, obviously, in, in the years immediately following 9/11. There was an increased tolerance uh, for this, uh, but there are always the people and groups who are uh, more sensitive to this, meaning that their their jobs or uh, their roles in society make them more susceptible to government surveillance. And as we've seen in the post 9/11 era, uh, there were uh, uh, you know abuses of these government surveillance programs, and uh, these these programs have started to be challenged. And as more people become aware of them, like, for example, through the Snowden revelations, the tolerance for these programs tends to waver. And I think we're, we're heading back down towards resistance to government surveillance much more than we were in the months and, and years uh, just after 9-11. Now, while I was aware of many of the government surveillance programs, I'm thinking of the FBI, COINTELPRO, or, as you said, the Snowden revelations. One thing I didn't know that this book introduced me to was Army Intelligence Domestic Surveillance. Can you talk a little bit about Christopher Pyle and what he discovered and what the effects of what he discovered were in this book? Sure. So uh, Christopher Pyle, who is currently a professor of political science at Mount Holyoke University, when he was a young man, he was a military intelligence officer 
And as a young lieutenant, he uh, was at Fort Holabird in Baltimore, U.S. Uh, Army base that um, was uh, part of the intelligence community. And he discovered, quite by accident, these domestic surveillance programs that were being conducted by the Army. These programs were meant to be uh, public safety programs. The idea was that they would be augmenting local law enforcement uh, for the purposes of stability. Now, this time period was the late 60s. As most people know, this was a time of great turbulence. Uh, this was just after the civil rights era, and there was there were assassinations and war protests uh, against the Vietnam War and against you know other government policies at the time. So you saw these uh, riots in Detroit and Los Angeles and other places. And so the U.S. Army saw themselves as this was part of their mission, uh, national security, and they saw these riots and the people that were rioting as potential threats to national security. And this, what Christopher Pyle discovered was that they were actually tracing individual U.S. citizens. They were planting undercover army agents. Uh, they were going to great lengths to spy on U.S. citizens as part of this program in sort of a preemptive way, meaning that they were watching the people and groups that the Army felt were potential threats to the stability of the United States, and they were keeping tabs on these in advance of any criminal behavior or any sort of behavior that would rise to the level of the interest of the Army. They, they were actually trying to predict uh, and prevent, and this was troubling uh, to Chris Pyle. So, Later, he wrote an article for the Washington Monthly about CONUS intelligence, CONUS being the uh, shortened version of continental U.S., that described these surveillance programs being conducted by the U.S. military uh, against U.S. citizens on U.S. soil. And this and a follow-up article that he wrote for the same journal raised a number of eyebrows, including uh, Senator Sam Irvin. And in his hearings, he brought in Chris Pyle and many other witnesses to look at this problem of army surveillance and the fact that although the, the military had been conducting this sort of surveillance, again, during war times, that sort of thing, the fact that this was now being computerized and made, uh, made easier for the army to keep track of individuals, uh, this was troubling even in the early 70s before, you know, this was nothing like we have today. So Chris Pyle really opened this door into this uh, really kind of an open secret at the time within the military intelligence community and let uh, civilians know exactly what you know their military was doing to them on U.S. soil. And one of those civilians was Arlo Tatum. And it's interesting, you talked about their looking for people who could be dangerous. And, and I just, when you were describing Arlo Tatum's life, I found that so you know, funny and sad because he was a conscientious objector. And that's how he kind of came on their radars was that he did not want to fight. He was a Quaker. Can you talk a little bit about Arlo Tatum and then the case that really becomes sort of the heart of this book and a legal precedent that I was unaware of? Yeah, so Arlo Tatum is, uh, you know, as, as you described, he was uh, a Quaker and a conscientious objector and spent two prison terms because of his uh, unwillingness to serve in the U.S. Uh, military, one during World War II and the other during Korea. And so he was very adamant, even when he had the chance to go to Canada or 
Uh, for example, when uh, one of the drafts came up, he happened to be in Mexico. He could have stayed. He instead he was uh, a man of principle, and he said, "No, I'm I'm not going to run away. I am going to face this and let them know that my principles will not allow me to serve in any capacity in the military uh, due to my strong beliefs." And so, after those two terms in prison for this. He went on to uh, be an activist, and he was uh, an anti-war activist, both here in the United States as well as abroad. So when programs like the FBI's counterintelligence program, or COINTELPRO, and the Army's uh, intelligence programs came around, he was obviously near the top of the list as of people that might be causing trouble for them, even though... As you say, I mean, he was a he was a conscientious objector. He was not someone that was going to be violent. Uh, he used nonviolent means, um, but that it was threatening enough to the U.S. military that they were going to specifically keep track of him and the groups that he was involved with. So when it became when the uh, Christopher Pyle articles came out, one of the names that he actually mentioned was Arlo Tatum, and this was to Tatum and others who were protesting the war, protesting U.S. foreign policy, they felt that this was unconstitutional in that their First Amendment rights to speak freely, to associate freely, were being chilled by being spied upon. Uh, that is, if they thought they were being watched, and this is, you know, this is a phenomenon we all know, if you're, if you're being watched, or if you know you're being watched, or you think you're being watched, you're going to act differently. This is when the government does it. It's that writ large. You know, this is something that uh, that is very fundamental to you know our Bill of Rights, and especially in the First Amendment, in that we are protected from these sorts of uh, these chilling effects. And so they brought a case claiming that they were harmed through this First Amendment chilling effect by these uh, programs that were revealed by Christopher Pyle, and then later in the uh, um, in the Sam Urban hearings. And when the case was at trial, they never got a chance to actually get to the merits of the case, to actually discuss the facts of the case, because the judge said that they did not have standing. Standing is a, uh, a principle that says that you have to, a number of rules, but it says that as a, as a plaintiff to have standing in a U.S. court, you have to be able to show that you have specifically been injured. And so that means that you have to show that the injury was to you, not to someone that's you know similarly situated, that the injury was actual, and there's a number of different rules that go along with that. And the judge there said, we cannot get to the merits of this case because you, Arlo Tatum, and the other plaintiffs in the case cannot show this court that you have standing. From there, it went to uh, the Court of Appeals, uh, where the Court of Appeals reversed the uh, lower court's decision, saying that no, that the plaintiffs had shown that they did have enough to show that they had standing. Again, this is not even getting to the merits of the case, not saying whether they would win the case or lose the case. This is only whether they can argue the case before the court. This is it's a threshold question. It's, you know, to get get over the threshold of the, the door of the court. And then the, the government uh, appealed that decision. It went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court agreed with the trial court and said, no, Tatum and the plaintiffs did not have standing in that case. So the Laird v. Tatum case never made it to uh, pass these, these threshold questions, never made it to the merits of the case because the Supreme Court decided ultimately that Tatum 
and the other plaintiffs could not show that they had Article Three standing in order to get past that threshold and actually argue their case. And as you mentioned in the book, you know, that there are entire volumes just about standing and Article Three standing. So I'm not going to ask you to get super into it. But specifically in this case, what led the Supreme Court, what part of standing did they feel Arlo Tatum lacked? He knew that he was being surveyed. So it would seem somewhat logical to say, yes, of course, I can challenge the fact that I'm being surveyed by the government. So what did the Supreme Court say was missing in this standing argument? Well, the Supreme Court, they said that even though that Tatum had an idea that he was being watched, there was some language that sort of rose up from the trial court where they said, look, first of all, what the U.S. military was doing was no different than a clipping service, meaning all they were doing was collecting information that was publicly available if the groups, for example, were meeting, they would actually attend the meeting. If you know, if it was a public meeting, they would take pictures. But again, these were in public places. So what the court had said, look, there's no, I mean, what they're doing is not any different from what a clipping service would do. So there's no real injury there. And then the idea that what Tatum was trying to show was that they experienced a First Amendment chill. This is what the injury that they actually incurred. The court disagreed and said, no, this is, this is subjective. It's not an infringement of constitutional rights. This is not enough to show standing. And the Supreme Court, you know, agreed with that. They said that this is, um, does not meet the standard of actual injury or, or imminent injury. This is something that, you know, the government has not punished you. Um, you know, you can't say, well, the government might take this information and punish me later. That's not enough for standing, according to the Supreme Court. The, uh, the injury has to be actual or imminent. And the Supreme Court said, what you argue is neither. Uh, this subjective chill is not enough by itself to show that there is uh, actual or imminent injury. And did this provide clear guidance for future cases brought against the government over surveillance programs? No, it's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Article Free Standing was described in a paper that I read uh, a few years back. It's described as the Rorschach test of American jurisprudence, uh, meaning that, uh, you know, judges see in Article Free Standing, you know, they, they interpret it in different ways. So standing doctrine is incredibly complex, mainly because it's not clear cut. It comes from this constitutional principle, Article Three of the Constitution, which uh, articulates, you know, setting up the, the Supreme Court. And it said that there's a case or controversy requirement. And from that, the uh, standing doctrine came about. And these are very broad principles. And it's, it's you know, over the years, it's, it's taken a very long time for courts to actually come up with, well, what does it mean for someone to have standing? I mean, what does actual or imminent injury mean? And, and these are not clear concepts. And the Laird Court did not make them any clearer. And this is part of the problem, is that it's very difficult to describe or to predict in, in these cases, which may be in gray areas. For example, uh, First Amendment chill, it's very difficult to predict where a court's going to come down on standing. So as you mentioned, public opinion on these sorts of things swings back and forth. And you said you feel that we're probably about ready for a course correction, where we swing another way possibly against granting the government enhanced surveillance powers. What are some of the cases currently 
being tried or some of the issues currently being raised that you think people should keep an eye on? There are a number of legal reforms that are currently being discussed in Congress, uh, either in uh, recently or currently. The, uh, the Freedom Act, for example, which has uh, been discussed recently in Congress, is something, you know, looking at how it's potentially changing uh, the USA Patriot Act, which was uh, what came out of, you know, the, the post 9-11 laws that, that came out of that uh, uh, that area. But it's also looking at uh, the way that courts, not just in Congress, but the way that courts are starting to treat this and starting to understand the actual meaning of surveillance today. Uh, for example, when a lot of the Fourth Amendment law was was made, if you're looking at the rule about whether we have a, you know, there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, for example, these rules were made in the, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, where we didn't have these sorts of technologies that enable governments or private agencies to watch us with the same level of detail and, and frankly, much less effort uh, than they would have had to then. So courts are starting to recognize that. There's a, uh, a well-known case of Supreme Court, uh, U.S. v. Jones, which had to do with the police putting a GPS tracking device on a, on a vehicle. And there's a, uh, a concurrence by Justice Sotomayor, where she actually goes into detail saying that what does it mean to be tracked on a very fine-grained scale? And she, you know, she goes on to describe that these technologies can now uh, speak volumes about your personal life, what church you go to, or whether you go to church at all, where you live, who you visit. Uh, there's, you know, all kinds of information that can be gleaned, not from even listening in on your conversations, but but getting all of this metadata uh, about, uh, you know, that's uh, sort of data about the data that we all leave behind now, uh, just by the fact that we carry smartphones around with us everywhere we go. So courts are starting to come around and recognize that injury is possible where courts weren't thinking that way even, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. There's the case before courts right now. It's the Wikimedia Foundation, similar circumstances to Laird. Uh, this is, you know, everybody knows the Snowden revelations. When Snowden released all of these this information, it was shown that the NSA was actually spying on certain organizations, and Wikimedia Foundation was one of them. And so they, much like Laird, sued. You know, this is based on, you know, First Amendment chill and, and other, you know, this was not their only argument, but this is, you know, one of their larger ones. And they said, uh, and the courts initially said, no, you don't have standing. But upon appeal, the Wikimedia Foundation, the other plaintiffs were found not to have standing, but Wikimedia Foundation they did show that they did have enough to, sh to have standing in U.S. courts, mainly because they were specifically mentioned in the documents that were released by uh, Snowden. So courts are now recognizing that this, you know, that there's a very actual or imminent injury potentially there for uh, for surveillance programs. And this is it's a bit of a breakthrough because, you know, until... You know, you think about the problem for a little bit. You have secret government surveillance programs. And if you have, based on rumor or based on suspicion, you have an idea that you're being spied upon if you bring this to court, the courts are going to say, well, you have no proof. This is all just subjective. But you can't get proof of a secret program. Uh, so there's a chicken and egg problem there. And now, you know, when there are revelations like with Christopher Pyle or with Snowden, 
you have these openings, potentially, for plaintiffs to actually challenge these government surveillance programs. And with Wikimedia, for example, we're seeing what may be uh, at least a small change in the courts in, in recognizing that there may be actual or imminent injury, enough at least to to grant them standing. That, again, does not say whether or not they lose the case or win the case. It only gets them to the point where they can actually argue the merits before the court. Now, the book, Being Watched, doesn't really get into your personal background, but I really find it interesting. Can you tell our listeners how you became interested in this subject and a little bit about how your background informs that interest in the subject? Sure. Prior to law school, I was uh, came from the technology side. I studied mathematics uh, and started a uh, you know, graduate program in studying algebraic geometry and algebraic number theory and looking at it at cryptography. And back in the, this is in the 90s, I went to this conference where they were talking about this idea of privacy and the web and cryptography. And this was during the, uh, what's been referred to as the first crypto wars, where the government was looking at making cryptography illegal or at least requiring backdoors. Now, this is back in the 90s. We're, we're seeing the same thing again now with the FBI talking about going dark and requiring backdoors into strong cryptography. So looking at this from the perspective of the 90s during the first crypto wars, we were realizing that policy around cryptography was going to be a very important issue, even though this was at the sort of nascency of the web and we weren't using cryptography nearly as widely as we are now. Now it's everywhere. It's every time you log into a website, a little lock shows up, that's strong cryptography. So this was something that uh, that I realized I was just as interested in, in the policy and legal sides of this as, as I was at the technical side. And that's when I, I decided to go to law school. And that's, you know, this is what I've been studying and, and teaching ever since. And in, in between there, I was also in the uh, U.S. Army National Guard. I was a, a military intelligence officer, although I did not have any Christopher Pyle experiences. You know, it, it gave me the opportunity to look at things from from that side as well. Uh, this is, you know, the obviously the not just the military, but the law enforcement agencies and other apparatus uh, within the U.S. government that are chartered with protecting the country, both from within and from without, have very real needs, and so. For example, when the FBI is saying, look, we can't get into uh, a phone, for example, that has been encrypted, what do we do? How do we gather this evidence? It's a real problem. The issue is, you know, it's, it's technical, it's, it's, you know, there are mathematical impossibilities that are involved, but this, this is all the more reason why, from my perspective, why this is so important, because this technical information needs to be deeply understood by our uh, judges, by our policymakers, by lawyers, and also the legal side, the policy side, needs to be deeply understood by people on the technical side. So this is how I got to where I am and what drives my scholarship today. If people are interested in reaching out to you and, and hearing more about these issues or reading other articles you've written, where can they go? Probably the uh, for one-stop shopping, they could either look at my Stanford Stanford CIS page. It's uh, Center for Internet and Society, and that contains all of my CIS blog posts, as well as links to my uh, other papers, uh, as well as SSRN, the Social Science Research Network, uh, which has, you know, it's very easy to search for SSRN in my name, and, and that information is there. But this is an area that 
is being well covered. There's a lot of great scholarship out there. And if, if readers are interested, there are a lot of very talented scholars that are doing great work in this area. And I highly recommend people from outside the legal community to really read, especially people in the technical community, uh, to read some of the scholarship and understand, you know, what are some of the legal and ethical issues surrounding, you know, the almost ubiquitous data collection that we have today and what that means for government surveillance as well as private surveillance. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And for our listeners who want to read this book, the title is Being Watched, Legal Challenges to Government Surveillance by Jeffrey Vogley. And thank you so much for joining us. Please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.